I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for business, for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards, and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Before we begin, a quick warning. This episode contains a brief discussion of a violent crime. We don't get into graphic detail, but listener discretion is advised. The truth is, is that the criminal justice database infrastructure in the United States is terrible. I'm Tali Farhadian-Weinstein, and this is Hearing. And this week, I'm talking to one of the architects of the Innocence Project, Barry Sheck. If you listen to the show, I'm willing to bet that's a name you've heard before. But even for those of us who are familiar with Barry, it's easy to forget just how transformative a figure he really is. Almost 30 years ago, Barry's early work in DNA analysis was a moonshot, one that has since led to the exoneration of hundreds of wrongfully convicted people. But beyond delivering justice to those people and their families, the Innocence Project's emphasis on DNA had a positive holistic effect on the entire criminal justice system. It encouraged a spirit of cooperation between prosecutors and defense attorneys, pushing us to better find and convict the people who actually committed the crimes. In short, Barry was a pioneer in using science to increase public safety. And now he wants to bring a similar approach to policing, which is where those databases you just heard him complaining about come in. 
We'll get to Barry's latest moonshot in a moment, but I wanted to start our conversation by asking him to revisit those early days of the Innocence Project, and one case in particular that demonstrated the potential of science, like DNA, to revolutionize criminal investigations. We got a case that dealt with somebody that was convicted in the Bronx of, uh, his name was Marion Coakley, of a gunpoint rape robbery of a couple that was in a motel. And the guy came into the motel room and he locked the guy in a bathroom. And then he took the woman, uh, he sexually assaulted her. And then at gunpoint, he took the woman to her home, took her car to her home. And he grasped uh, the rear view mirror of the car, Mm -hmm. then took her up to her home and got her relative uh, to give him money and then left and drove her car uh, to another location and abandoned it. They then uh, went through photo identification, a trawling of photographs, and the woman identified Marion Coakley. But the amazing thing about the case is that he had uh, something like 14, 15 alibi witnesses that he was at a prayer service on the other side of the Bronx. They then did conventional serology testing of semen. There was none of his blood type in the serological analysis of the semen. So in theory, he should have been excluded. And uh, our friend Bob Scheller, who was then head of the serology unit at the New York City Medical Examiner's Office, testified at the insistence of a prosecutor who asked him, you know, forceful questions, well, isn't it possible that he, Marion could have been a low-level secretor? Essentially, it would have been a false negative on the serology test because he didn't secrete enough blood group substances into his semen. And so Bob said, yeah, in theory, that's true. And that was enough to get a, a, a guilty verdict from the jury. So we then went out. We had Marion, uh, frankly, ejaculate at uh, random intervals in Attica Prison to prove that he was not a low-level secretor. Um, and then we said, well, what about the fingerprints on the rearview mirror of the car? And they said, oh, no, that's not a fingerprint. That's a palm print. And in New York City, we don't do palm prints. So uh, we were lucky enough, I had a male nurse in my clinic that knew cops, um, and he went up to Attica and rolled a palm print of Marion Coakley, and then we compared it to the palm print taken from the rearview mirror and excluded him. And so uh, Judge Burton Roberts, who was chief judge in the Bronx and was a famous district attorney there and a character uh, in Bonfire of the Vanities, book is kind of dedicated to him. Uh, His Burtness, as he was called, uh, took a look at this and basically vacated the conviction. Barry, it's so fascinating for me to hear you describe these origin stories, because uh, as you know, uh, last year, I did this massive report with your colleagues at the Innocence Project when I was in the Brooklyn DA's office, just to take stock of the first 25 vacated convictions at the Conviction Review Unit in Brooklyn, and just to see what happened. And on the one hand, I hear that you identified very early what were some of our core principles, such as this is a cooperative search for truth. But what really stands out to me is that 
in that body of 25 cases, I think there was almost nothing about DNA. And so you launched this movement because you saw potential in this new technology to change the face of justice. And what you put into motion outgrew the need to rely on DNA. I mean, I can't think of the last time we had an application that depended on DNA in the Brooklyn Conviction Review Unit, because of course now we use DNA during the investigation and trial, not just as a tool for exoneration. And we've come to look for other mistakes and other errors uh, that frankly are sometimes harder to find and to identify and bring to light because it's not as black and white as science. And I want to use this as a launching off point to get into the real reason I also wanted to talk to you today, because it seems to me like you've had another vision that is dependent on seeing the potential for new science, new tech to enter the space of justice. And this is about how we can use big data to deal with the problem of police credibility. I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about this new project or ambition that you have. Well, um, the proposals that we've been putting forward, I would like to call the uh, Community Law Enforcement Accountability Network. It really, again, began with two young women who were in the Legal Aid Society, one named Julie Ciccolini, who had uh, I mean, she, they were paying her uh, there as a paralegal, but she was uh, really a technologist or data science. And a woman named Cynthia Conti-Cook, uh, what was fascinating about uh, Conti, as she's called, is that uh, she had a background initially as a civil rights attorney. So she had a sense of uh, patterns of misconduct that officers might engage in. So they began to build a defense database. You know, New York had uh, a, the second worst law in the country. The first worst law in the country was California on hiding police misconduct data. And, and this law, we should say, has been repealed. You advocated for its repeal. I advocated for this repeal. I assume you're referring to 50A. Well, 50A in New York. In yeah. California, they, they called it pitches, and it's not completely gone, but it's mm -hmm. uh, it fell first. But... What's important to know about it is that in New York, they started this database. And uh, so they would try to gather as much public data as they could. So it turned out that uh, officer overtime was public data. So you could do a freedom of information law request to get the overtime data on the police. And that was very telling uh, because, you know, you could really find things out about uh, the officers, particularly those racking up a lot of overtime, where, where they really were, where they said they were, but you should watch them. That was number one. Number two, they would scrape the data of civil rights cases brought against New York City police officers, um, and they would uh, then put that into the database, and then they would uh, scrape everything from newspapers with the name of the officer. And, you know, this requires Freedom of Information Acts. Just take New York City, you have to do the CCRB. Then you have to do the police department. Uh, then you have to do uh, the prisons. And then the data comes in and it's from different years and different systems. So how do you all get it and how do you work with it? And it's very important to emphasize that it's what one would call a federated database. That is to say, they gave it to the Bronx defenders, the New York County defenders, the Brooklyn defenders, a nonprofit like the Innocence Project or the NYCLU. You could get limited access, but each of the different offices had information 
that couldn't be disclosed, even things they got under protective order that couldn't be widely shared. And let me just interrupt you to say, for the sake of our listeners, that while you are describing this database that defense counsel are putting together, prosecutors, of course, have a constitutional, statutory, and ethical obligation to know their witnesses and to collect and then disclose impeachment evidence, so evidence that might be used to reflect on a witness's credibility, including police officers. So what is your breakthrough? Because this all sounds very 20th century and cumbersome. What we eventually realized is uh, that the legal aid lawyers had more information about the police than the district attorneys. And the bottom line was these two uh, people at legal aid invented this database. Now, I began working on this in California. Out in California, probably the biggest source of information was the press making Public Record Act requests. And there was a coalition of 40 newsrooms that got together, the California Reporting Project, and they have begun to request the information. So just envision this. In New York and California now, um, we are learning about misconduct information that's uh, a quarter of a century old about police officers that nobody ever saw that you should have been entitled to see. And in all of these uh, uh, police shooting cases, or uh, misconduct cases, whether it was Eric Garner in New York City and Staten Island and Officer Pantaleo, or it was Derek Chauvin and George Floyd, or whether it was uh, Detective Van Dyke and the killing of Laquan McDonald in Chicago, you name it, all of these cases, when eventually the scandals emerged, you found out that they all had either prior acts of misconduct that were not public or a whole series of allegations against them. Okay. And and I want to add something here, Barry, because this has been very much on my mind. In many of these cases, we have found out after the fact that there have been allegations of domestic violence or sexual assault Absolutely. against the officers. The only police officer who was indicted for the death of Breonna Taylor had allegations like that. And I worry about that a lot because there's data that shows, right, that there is more domestic yes. violence who may be two to four times as high in police families as in other families. You know, that seems important to know and has been information that's been particularly hard to get at. Yes. These things were, were kept secret. But now we have a coalition uh, that are coming together between public defenders, journalists, the ACLU. We're all going to work together. So the journalists will do Public Record Act requests. They'll get the information and they'll write a story. Their sources will remain private, but the public data that they got can go into a public database. If the defenders do it and they get public data, they can put it into a public database. And prosecutors. And prosecutors, as you and I have talked about. Prosecutors uh, are well positioned to get even more information. Everybody would have their own database, but when they put the information in, they would be commonly coded and tagged. So that the public database uh, and the defenders and everybody else, you could search it. You would be able to do apples to apples comparisons. And this could lead to really great scholarship, really great journalism, really great policy analysis. Better prosecution, because we presumably could also benefit from searching this database for information about our witnesses? It changes everything because you you decide which cases to charge in a better way. The judge has a better sense of, of bail. It's groundbreaking. 
there are data scientists that know how to use machine learning tools. So when I talk about coding and tagging the data, uh, you know, the key part of it is ingesting, you know, using people to try to sort it out and summarize it. It's going to take forever. But if you use, uh, I call it machine learning tools, but it really is artificial intelligence. Um, and all big entities uh, in the world use this, uh, you will be able to actually get this uh, database system going. And, you know, it's simple things that uh, we realized uh, early on at the Innocence Project. What happens in this country is when a crime lab is asked to analyze evidence, they give it their own laboratory number and they produce the work. Uh, they have no idea what happens to the case unless some district attorney later calls them up to come testify at some hearing or trial. And so if something goes wrong at the lab level, how do you go back and find the defendants, what happened in the case? How do you track it down? So the lab number should always be tied uh, to the original arrest or accusatory instrument number in every jurisdiction in this country so we can find everything. I imagine one of the benefits of this database you're envisioning is that even when an officer moves from one jurisdiction to another, one borough to another, one state to another, all of the information we know about him would travel with him. Yes. But I want to ask you a question, please, because you have referred to this information as misconduct information in this conversation. I have talked about it as information that reflects on credibility. But I yes. read something really interesting that you wrote, uh, which is, as I understand it, you have said that in an ideal world, we wouldn't just know where a police officer may have done something wrong, but also what else we need to know about his or her experiences to understand how she might be moving through the job. So you've talked about wanting to know if he has had himself substance abuse problems, uh, mental health problems, maybe if he's been exposed to let's say lots of really traumatic cases of, you know, let's say crimes against children, something that would really weigh on a person, right? Um, and and fray their, their nerves or their spirit. So have I understood you correctly that uh, ultimately you would want us to build out uh, a multi-dimensional understanding of police officer witnesses, uh, putting every, being over-inclusive, just putting everything we can in this pot? Yes. You really want to monitor police officers to make sure that they don't handle too many uh, traumatic, frankly, domestic violence cases in a row. And there are very good questions raised of, uh, by people who want to, uh, you know, reconstruct policing uh, that maybe they shouldn't be involved in those inst uh, uh, kinds of encounters in the first place. But uh, certainly the secondary trauma that officers experience here, you know, is something that if you're trying to run a good police department, You've got to keep a track of that. You know, I find this actually very empathetic, Barry, that you're not just like searching for the bad apples. Uh, part of what you're trying to understand is how we can also support the police in understanding that their vulnerabilities, their needs, how to make sure that if they are experiencing, for example, a secondary trauma, uh, that we have a handle on that. Um, and and I, I, I'm, I'm quite moved by that, actually. Well, thank you. I mean, yeah. they, it's not original to me, believe me. They've done really great studies of uh, what about the partners? There are networks within police departments, right? And uh, you have an idealistic young officer, and then he gets or she gets involved with a group of uh, officers that are breaking the rules, right? 
then you might wind up in a situation where you're breaking the rules. There's a lot that can be done to turn around policing. So I have to ask you what I'm sure you've been asked before, which is, how is this going to make police officers feel if your vision comes to life? Will they feel unfairly tracked, vilified? Um, I mean, presumably the the idea that more information um, is always better means that you can't really vet some of the things that will go into this database, and nor would you want to. Uh, and, and so what do you say to the critics who ask you those questions? Well... I think that uh, the, the real issue has to do with uh, discipline in police departments, um, and it is an issue of reconciliation. But Barry, I'm asking you something different because there is no doubt that um, many police officers have done some unspeakable yes. things yes. and abuses of their authority. I have documented some, you have documented many, but what about the police officer who says you're putting unadjudicated, unsubstantiated allegations against me into a place now where more people can read about them and it makes me feel demoralized or it makes me feel unsafe. Um, it inhibits my ability to do my job and thus it's bad for public safety. We have some very interesting ex uh, data out of the yeah. state of Florida. Florida has always had an open records process. Any uh, you know uh, adjudication has always been known and they also have a very uh, uh, robust uh, police decertification process. I have a friend named Phil Pulaski, who is chief of detectives um, in Miami-Dade. And, you know, we would talk about these kinds of issues all the time. And then Phil said, you know, it's amazing here. The detectives are very worried about uh, being decertified. And as a consequence, they'll do what they're asked to do. <laughs> You know, so, I mean, if the system is put in place that's transparent, it does have, uh, uh, you know, certain deterrent effects. But uh, you ask a tougher question in terms of, you know, I think the officers, a lot of it has to do with police discipline. So let me just share with you what I think is the best law right now in the country, potentially. And that is Senate Bill 731 in California. Senate Bill 731 in California tries to create one statewide standard um, for getting a license. You know, the, the best thing about uh, the movement to professionalize policing should be uh, licensing officers, right? So you get certified to be a police officer, to carry a gun. You're a licensed like you're a doctoral lawyer or all the other professions that uh, uh, you know, life and death are involved where we want people to be licensed. And then the question is, well, how do we adjudicate complaints about licensing? So the, the proposal in California is that there should be a statewide entity. So the standards are the same, whether you're in a small town or a large uh, city, um, and that the uh, commission that oversees it should have representatives from the community impacted people. It should have people from middle ranks of police departments, uh, you know, chiefs of police departments. It have prosecutors. It should have defense lawyers. Uh, and it, it should have uh, academics, frankly, uh, um, people from different disciplines to adjudicate complaints about misconduct that could lead to decertification. And the standard for decertification is not just you got convicted of a felony, as it is so many states, but having to do with your fitness to be an officer. Right, right? A pa parallel to other professional licensing. That's exactly. And you get due process too, because you can. It, they, they can bring a complaint. 
this entity can make a finding, right? And then you get a hearing in front of a, an administrative law judge where you can protest that it doesn't fit the, you know, the standards that have been laid down and defend yourself. And it's outside of the collective bargaining process. And this is a way to really change policing in America. You once said very provocatively that you thought that big data should be able to end testa lying. Uh, is this what you meant? Is it this collection of data that you thought could end that problem of police officers lying under oath? Yes, I do believe uh, th that that's true. In this era of big data, we should have access to people's transcripts. We should have access to related type cases that they've gone through. Um, because, you know, the fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, once you're a police officer and, you know, you're somebody's got to get time off, you'll testify that you saw the gun or you'll testify that you made the recovery or you'll testify to some small fact, which in the grand scheme of things seems like a white lie. Right. And not a big deal. It is a very big deal. Of course, it's it's uh, aside from being wrong, it it erodes trust in the criminal justice system. It, it is a slippery slope um, and it's a very hard job to be a police officer. It's dangerous. Uh, it, it It's wearing on one psychologically and spiritually. I have great admiration and sympathy for officers of the law really do. We share that. But also we have to structure their environments. It's got to be a, a place where the good police officers are not afraid of the bad ones. I will ask you this last question, and maybe you don't want to answer it, but we've talked about you identifying DNA as a way to start ending wrongful conviction. Obviously, we are not there yet. And big data as a way to end testifying. And I wonder if you're looking around the corner, Barry, if there's another moonshot that, that you'd like to get to at some point. Well, I think, I think uh, it would be enough to start this community law enforcement database system in the United States. Yes. And, uh, it would have been enough to start the Innocence Project. Well... I think because we know that we are at an inflection point in criminal justice and we don't know yet what to do, it is helpful to go back to breakthroughs and that was a breakthrough. I mean, even for me, like, why did I need to talk to you about the start? I'm deeply familiar with the work of the Innocence Project and I think that sometimes that's the best way to figure out how to launch is to go and see how a previous rocket ship actually was able to take off. So thank you for telling us that story. Well, one day we'll have a drink and I'll tell you all the story, but- uh... I would like to have a drink again, Barry. <laughs> I, yes. Hearing is produced in partnership with Pushkin Industries. Our producers are Sam Dingman and Camille Baptista. Our engineer is Evan Viola. Special thanks to Malcolm Gladwell and Jacob Weisberg. This podcast is paid for by New Yorkers Fratali, and Barry Sheck's appearance on the show does not constitute a political endorsement. Please note Barry is not speaking on behalf of the Innocence Project in this episode. The views he expressed today are his own. I am running to be District Attorney of Manhattan and to set a national example in delivering safety, fairness, and justice for all, especially our most vulnerable. If you like what you've heard, go to tally4da.com to learn more about my campaign. I'm Tali Farhadian-Weinstein. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Hearing.
The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.